Hello and welcome to the Day Minimus podcast. My name is Cameron Moyer. This week I'm interviewing Scott Stevenson. Scott's an academic at the Melbourne Law School specialising in constitutional law. He teaches principles of public law, constitutional law, and sometimes advanced consti. In our interview, Scott talked about the advantages of a judicial associateship after leaving uni, why he became an academic, constitutions in general and the history of Australia's constitution, and why he recommends scuba diving and where. It was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So without further ado, here is Scott Stevenson. Scott Stevenson, welcome to the show. Thanks, lovely to be here. Um, How did you come to study law in the first place? Well, basically by accident, I was coming to the end of high school trying to decide what courses to study for university or at university. And I was initially intending to study economics. And then a course advisor said, well, you you can't really study a single degree as an undergrad. It's, you know, the norm is to study a double degree. And after expressing an interest in English, uh, they said, well, what a, why not either arts or law? And so on a whim, I chose law. Then when I, as I sort of got to the, the sort of census date, I realized that economics involved far too much mathematics and modeling for my uh, capacity. And so I switched into uh, arts, international relations and law. So I sort of ended up there by accident. But within about the first semester, I found that it, it really resonated with my way of sort of thinking and, and, and perceiving the world. And I found it way more fascinating than I thought it would be. So it was, it was basically by accident. I definitely don't come from a family of lawyers or... Uh, I remember watching, I think it was, who's Danny, Danny Crane. Uh, the, there was, there were some uh, law shows uh, when I was uh, um, at, in high school, but uh, definitely wasn't a, yeah, yeah, a big influence on me. So it was mainly just by accident. Mm. Uh, so what were some of your highlights from your time studying law? I think one of the classes that really resonated with me was a class I did with James Stelios, who's a professor at the ANU, which is where I did my undergraduate studies. And he did this course on basically, it was basically advanced constitutional law. And he started out with the dilemma that, that everyone starts out with in the United States, which is about the legitimacy of judicial review. Uh, that, that sort of has, has plagued the United States since Marbury v. Madison. And the basic idea being in a democratic system of government, how can it be legitimate for seven or nine, in the case of the United States, unelected persons to have the power to invalidate the actions of a democratically elected legislature? And it's, it's a very simple problem but once you start to sort of um, unpack it you realize the layers of complexity uh, you know there are certain theories of democracy that are compatible with judicial review then there are others that are not it depends partly on what sorts of judicial review you're doing is judicial review in the sense of dividing power between the commonwealth and states might be less democratically problematic than judicial review of fundamental rights and freedoms, because the, with the latter, uh, 
you take power away permanently from the legislature in relation to a particular area of policy. And so as, as soon as like I was introduced to that problem, I, I, I became sort of fascinated by it. And, and then, you know, a lot of the semester was spent sort of teasing it apart. And so I remember that being a real highlight for me because it, it, it really, it, it married my interests of law and politics uh, in a way in which law added something quite unique uh, to the um, dilemmas. It wasn't just politics by another name. I think another second big highlight for me was going on university exchange. So I spent a year in Copenhagen, Denmark. And not only was that a, a tremendously enjoyable and fun year, it, 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 it opened my eyes to the other sort of part of my academic interest today, which was comparative law. We, you know, sitting down in a classroom in Denmark and learning about European Union law. And there they'd sort of experienced a similar Marbury v. Madison phenomenon, which was the European Court of Justice essentially assuming for itself again, the power to sort of assert European legal supremacy over national legal supremacy, even though that wasn't entirely clear. And there was this, um, you know, again, a massive change to the way in which sort of the hierarchy of laws operated in Europe through judicial intervention. Uh, and, and so these sort of, and, and that when you look at them comparatively, there's something similar, but also quite different about how they played out, the sort of political reactions they engendered. And so I first sort of got really into constitutional law through, you know, the United States experience and then really got interested in comparative law by going to Europe and seeing what it was like in a different system, a similar problem playing out in a very, very different context. And it showed me that we have so much to learn by looking outside our own system to sort of see the assumptions that are built into the way we think about law, what it is and what it can do and so forth. So I think they were, those were two really formative experiences for me. Mm. How did you find Copenhagen as a city just out of interest? Absolutely brilliant. I think it, it's one <laughs> of the finest cities in the world. And the reason for that is that I think it, it hits the perfect sort of size. It's sort of, big enough that it was exciting, at least for, um, for a person from Canberra, uh, but it wasn't so big that it's sort of, it's encumbered by some of the pathologies of enormous mega cities. The, when I first went, it was a, a bit of a sleepy town. So today it's, it's sort of known as, as this place that's the home of, of Scandinavian cuisine and, 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 and is quite cool and hip. It was a bit more laid back when I first went, but I actually lived there a second time uh, about a sort of almost a decade later after that sort of revolution uh, had sort of um, swept the city. And both times was very, very interesting. But I think the thing that, made, that really sold me on it was that it's like in some ways a very perfect medium density city. So, you know, and so there's always some, there's something to do in all parts of the city. And it's very, very humane in the sense that you can cycle everywhere. Uh, there's a great pedestrian culture. There's great sort of food and drink, you know, wherever you go in the city. So I absolutely loved it. And I can't wait to get back and try and live there again for a third time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found the same sort of thing. I visited there for about a week and I just got absolutely hooked on it. It was yeah. depressing to leave. <laughs> it's a terrific place.
Mm. Um, so what did you do after you studied law? So after I finished my undergraduate degree, I spent two years working at the High Court of Australia. So for the first year, I was the court's legal researcher. Basically in that role, I assisted a number of judges with different aspects of their judicial function. So for example, I was there for the last few months of Justice Kirby's tenure on the court and Justice Kirby gave a lot of speeches. Uh, he liked to talk to the public. And so he would often call on the legal research officer to help out with background research um, that would then go into his speeches, for example. But it was also about helping the other judges, sometimes in relation to work that went into judicial decision-making, sometimes into um, uh, papers that um, informed interactions with the other members of um, the other arms of government. Uh, and sometimes sort of internal work uh, to the court. So it was a mixture of uh, types of research and it, there was some other work that involved updating members of the public about judicial decisions that were coming before the court uh, and that had been recently decided. Um, but it was a lot of work behind the scenes to sort of assist the judges in any way that they sort of saw fit. And then uh, for the second year that I was at the the court, I was uh, Justice Virginia Bell's associate. And that role, again, sort of had two main components. One is an in-court, in particular, support role. So you sit behind the judge in court and assist them with any materials they need. And there's a lot of preparation that goes into that assistance um, up, you know, as the case is making its way to the court and through the court. And then the other main function is to help them again with aspects of their judicial writing, whether that might be research, uh, reading and proofreading draft judgments, uh, assisting with the processing of applications for special leave to appeal and so forth. Um, and both were really terrific roles. You get to sort of see the court up close and see how it works from the inside and you get to work with, you know, some of the most brilliant legal minds in Australia at, you know, straight out of university. So it, it was a great privilege and honour. It seems like kind of a, not the most intuitive decision to go into that sort of role straight out of university. What made you apply to become a researcher for the High Court? Right. So the, the reason I got that particular role is... Uh, somewhat, you know, uh, an unusual story. I actually applied to be Justice Kirby's final associate. And when I was in the interview for, uh, with him, he said, well, you know that to be my associate, one of the things I, I have a lot of that the other judges, that, that the other judges do not uh, is a lot of guests as in he would host all sorts of people uh, in his chambers uh, during the lunch uh, recess when courts were uh, when court was in session after the court hearings had finished for the day and so forth and so he said you make a lot of cups of tea for people uh, and he said do you are you happy to do that and I sort of obviously I, I don't have a very good poker face because I was I, I guess I, I very visibly uh, hemmed and hard about that and thought uh, not really uh, to be honest and he said well there's this other role that almost no one knows about where 
you get to do all the fun research and you don't have to make any cups of tea. And I hadn't even heard of the role I had. And he said, you know, he, he thought I'd be great for this role because I love legal research and, and writing and so forth. And I don't love making cups of tea. And so he put me forward uh, for the, this legal research officer role. So I sort of got it again, almost by uh, mistake or by accident. But the reason I had wanted to apply to the high court to be an associate and, and why I applied to be Justice Virginia Bell's associate after I'd finished that one year at the court is that that role, uh, you know, an associate role, either at the high court or really any court, federal court, Supreme Court, county court, district court, is a great role to do straight out of university. First, because you get to see how um, judicial decision-making works in practice. You know, you read a lot of judicial decisions in law school, but you don't really get to see inside the sausage factory to see how it's made. And so that's, I think, a really valuable uh, lesson if, if you have the opportunity to take it. But it's in particular, it's good if you're someone who doesn't net yet know what they want to do with them, with their career, because a judicial associateship doesn't close any uh, career doors. It keeps them basically all open. There are judicial associates who've gone on to be solicitors, to be barristers, to be um, able to work in government, uh, have gone on to be academics. So you can do pretty much anything in law after being a, an associate. It doesn't sort of narrow your options. And, and coming out of law school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was equivocating between going to the bar, you know, going out and becoming a solicitor and then ultimately ending up um, as a barrister or becoming an academic, as in I'd, I'd been um, really impressed by my teachers at law school and I'd worked for a number of them as a, as a researcher, a research assistant, uh, and, I, and I was fascinated with the intellectual parts of the law, which is often the parts that academics interrogate in their research. And so that was definitely something that interested me. But I was also interested in the bar and in, in the, the tradition of advocacy and, and the importance of barristers to the legal system. And so I wanted to sort of also see what barristers did up front and, and you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that did help me in deciding that I, that perhaps going to the bar was not for me because I saw just how technical uh, a lot of the work is even before the high court, uh, that even when you're talking about the sort of the largest cases that perhaps have the widest impact, a lot of it does turn on very fine distinctions in say statutory interpretation or the interpretation of precedent. And for me, that was not really what interested me about the law. It was the bigger questions about, you know, the legitimacy of judicial review, as I've talked about before, uh, but the role of courts in society and in shaping politics and so forth. And I realised that barristers and even judges sort of contribute to that in small ways, but, you know, it's only through sort of, you know, academia that you can sort of step back and look at the bigger picture. Uh, so I, in that sense, I, I wanted to go and become an associate to sort of see, uh, to give me a bit of guidance in particular as to whether I wanted to go into legal practice or not. Mm. Um, okay, so how did you wind up in your current role then? So since going to Denmark on exchange, I'd always wanted to go and live overseas again. 
I just had such a great year and, and, and sort of, again, it opened my eyes to all the possibilities outside of Australia. So one of the things I had sort of very firmly in mind um, after I graduated my undergraduate degree was to go and live overseas. The, and as I was sort of spending my time at the high court, I was becoming clearer that I wanted to sort of go into academia rather than into to legal practice. And it's very common, almost mandatory for an academic to have done further study before they go into academia, uh, their master's and their doctorate. And when I was talking to my teachers uh, at a, a, when I was an undergraduate, they, uh, I was trying to sort of work out, well, where should I go to um, undertake a master's and a doctorate if I was going to go down that road? And it was very interesting. They sort of said, go to the UK if you're interested in private law. Um, you know, there's a really rich tradition of private law thinking, uh, and it's very useful for you, particularly if you wanted to come back uh, and be a, a barrister. But if you're interested in public law, go to the US. The US has the sort of deepest tradition of public law sort of scholarship and theory. Uh, it, it's very different from Australia in many respects. Um, so, but that difference will generate new perspectives on our own, you know, system of public law. And so all those things um, came together to make it a bit of a no brainer for me to go and study overseas in the United States after that. So I went, I went to the US, I did my master's for one year, and then stayed on to do my doctorate. And then while I was um, doing my doctorate, I spent a, a, a year in the UK uh, as part of that doctorate and six months in Denmark, again, uh, at, a, at a research institute. So I spent uh, a number of years overseas again, and again, it was terrific fun, and I recommend it to anyone who is lucky enough to have the opportunity. Uh, and, this, and, and my teachers were right. The US challenged, challenged me in, in so many ways intellectually, as in their conception of what courts can do, what law should and should not do is just so very different from ours. And we tend to caricature the United States uh, and think of it in very simplistic terms. But when you're inside the system, learning with other Americans about the system, you realize its complexity and that you can't sort of paint it with a black or a white sort of brush. Uh, you know, there it, it really is... Um, very, very nuanced uh, in its approach. And you only start to see that um, when you sort of study it from the inside. So there's this real value of going sort of um, for stepping from outside inside the system and, and seeing what it's like uh, to those who work in it in a day-to-day -day manner. And as I was coming to the end of my doctorate, I, uh, yeah, was quite convinced that I wanted to sort of then go into academia and found myself uh, with a position at Melbourne and so therefore returning to Australia. So, and that's where I've been sort of ever since. So I've spent a year on sabbatical uh, in the UK in that time as, as since I've been at Melbourne. Uh, but yeah, absolutely love working here at Melbourne as a terrific law school. So yeah, very happy. Cool. Um, so I wanted to turn now to some questions about constitutional law. Um, I guess most basically, what is a constitution? Um, what's it there to do? Right. So there's a few ways of thinking about it. 
One way is it's the sort of supreme law in any particular country. Uh, so, you know, it's the law that governs everything else. All other laws have to comply with the constitution. All people, including even members of the government, have to comply uh, with the constitution. But perhaps a better way of, and but that only applies in some systems, most systems, but not all systems. I think the best way of thinking about a constitution is it's really the laws uh, that govern government in, in some way. They, uh, it might not be the only set of laws that govern government, but it's often the sort of primary law or set of laws that tell us what the executive can and cannot do, what the parliament or the legislature can and cannot do, and what the judiciary can and cannot do, and also what all three arms of government can and cannot do vis-a-vis individuals. That's often a bill of rights. You know, the government may not abridge your freedom of speech, for example, in the United States and so forth. So in very, very simple terms, you know, a constitution basically governs government by telling us what government is comprised of, that it's typically comprised of three arms of government, and, you know, in a system like Australia, that we have two levels of government, a commonwealth and state government, and what each of them can and cannot do. Okay. Does it always have to be written? Uh, it's usually written, not always. So the, the sort of the complicated, the main examples of a a constitution that don't neatly fit into that out of the United Kingdom and New Zealand. They have written constitutions. There are things written down uh, that do constitute a constitution, but they're not codified. Uh, they're not in a single document. You can't sort of go to a single document and go, well, here are the provisions that that amount to the constitution. Instead, you know, in the United Kingdom and in New Zealand, you have to look to a number of statutes you have to look to judicial decisions and you have to look to unwritten constitutional conventions, which are, you know, sometimes captured in things like cabinet or prime minister manuals, sometimes in judicial decisions, sometimes in all sorts of different sources. Now, you know, the complicating factor here is that, you know, even in a system that has a, a single document called the constitution, such as Australia or the United States, uh, there's plenty of other documents that form part of the constitution as well. There are statutes, there are judicial decisions and so forth. But, but So almost in every system, you'll find something in writing, but in some systems, you'll find a single document that's sort of your starting point. In other systems, you'll have to go to a range of sources. So are there any advantages to writing a constitution or codifying it, I guess? So the United Kingdom is having that debate right now. Uh, there, there's been a, a number of scholars and judges and so forth debating about whether the United Kingdom should have a, a, you know, a codified constitution or not. And the arguments for and against it are, as you might expect, sort of quite familiar. You know, what, what would be the benefit of putting it all in one spot? It's easier to find, as in it, it enhances is that rule of law value that everyone can go to this one document and work out basically, you know, what uh, parliament can and cannot do, what are your fundamental human rights and so forth. So in that sense, you know, it facilitates accessibility. You know, that's one of the big advantages. But there are also big disadvantages. Uh, you know, one of them which we experience, you know, quite profoundly in Australia is rigidity, that if you put it all in one document and then you make that document hard to change, because it is 
you know, supposed to be superior to other laws and because it's really important, you might get stuck with parts of a constitution that feel very um, archaic. So, you know, there's lots of arguments for and against. Uh, and, but, you know, that they, they sort of would resonate with, you know, if anyone who studied law will understand, you know, why do we write down things in statutes, partly so they are easy to find and, you know, and read. Um, but what's the, um, one of the benefits is that they can be a bit rigid. And of course, no one constitution will cover every circumstance uh, that we're going to encounter. So it's going to have to be filled in with other things anyway, you know, and so someone who's really in favour of the current UK system or the current New Zealand system would say, look, our system of government is working, you know, relatively well without a codified constitution and it has this flexibility. It adapts as, you know, time goes on. While, once you, while you go to the United States, you're stuck with this document that's, you know, over 200 years old and it's really hard and so you sort of try to have to fit things into a really old, creaky document. So those are sort of some of the basic arguments for and against. Um, okay, so why do we have the constitution that we do? Um, so the move towards federation is understandable, but what about everything else that's contained within the constitution? Why, what sort of influenced the way that it was written? So the move to federation in the second half of the 19th century, you know, was, was influenced by a range of, you know, pragmatic considerations. And, you know, one of the classic examples is that the, the six colonies were sort of operating almost like separate countries. They were imposing tariffs on, um, on goods coming from other colonies. And, and, you know, this was extremely economically inefficient. And so, you know, as the sort of 19th century progresses, the colonies decide, you know, it would be much more efficient for us to sort of come together and federate, create a free trade zone within the continent of Australia that would make trade cheaper, it would make us more prosperous, and there'll be other benefits that we'd benefit from collective defence forces um, against um, a, um, sort of potential threats coming from the north of Australia and so forth. And so the, what's in the constitution is motivated in large part by those pragmatic concerns. Uh, it was, you know, there's a lot in there about free trade and tariffs and, and duties of excise and so forth, because that's what they were worried about. Um, and the, you know, there's there's no bill of rights in there because they weren't really worried about government, um, you know, infringing on people's fundamental rights and freedoms. This was not a constitution born out of revolution against government like it was in the United States, for example, or France. Uh, it was a constitution born out of basically trust of government. You know, and and, and if you think about Australia, is an enormous continent. Back in the late 19th century, it had a tiny number of people. It, we relied on government very heavily to sort of make life work, you know, to build the railway lines that would transport us along the eastern seaboard, for example, um, you know, to provide um, public goods that would be necessary to live and so forth. So it was motivated, you know, in part by a trust in government or at least a belief that government was there to assist people. And that's why you don't see things like bills of rights. In terms of its intellectual influences, it's basically a confluence of the United States and the United Kingdom because they those were the two constitutional systems that the framers were most familiar with. And so, if you read the Constitution, you can very you know clearly see the influence of the United States on the structure of it, um, on a lot of the provisions and so forth. But then there are lots 
um, of things that clearly bear the influence of the United Kingdom, the system of responsible government being the most obvious. So it, it reflected those sort of, I, those sort of uh, viewpoints and it was motivated by a specific set of pragmatic concerns, which is basically why you get what's in it. It was there to set up a Commonwealth level of government. So it's mostly dealing with the Commonwealth. It doesn't say much about the states because they thought that the colonies would become states and would continue to be governed as they had been prior to federation. Hmm. It's been a while since I did constitutional law with you, but from memory, I think the executive seems to be quite vaguely defined. Why is that? Well, you know, again, it's partly, I think, driven by, you know, the, the principles of responsible government uh, that motivated it, that, you know, the executive came from parliament uh, and that relationship between the executive and parliament would be governed by constitutional convention, like it is in the UK. Uh, so you don't write those things down. You don't write, well, who is the prime minister? Why is that person the prime minister? What is cabinet? Uh, what, you know, what role does cabinet have? So that's all governed by, you know, constitutional convention. That's the way you dealt with that relationship. Um, and I think just um, partly they felt that it would be a bit difficult to try and enumerate exactly what the executive can and cannot do. You know, if we think about it, it's quite clear in at least some respects, what is Parliament's role? Parliament's role is to make laws uh, and, you know, to also hold the executive to account, for example. And so it's relatively easy, at least in some respects, to put that in writing. You know, Parliament can make laws on these particular subjects uh, and, there, and there are some provisions in there that sort of relate to the accountability function, you know, requiring ministers to be members of Parliament and so forth. Again, with the judiciary, although it is a little bit difficult to under, you know, to sort of define what courts do, in some ways it is relatively straightforward. You know, they're there to adjudicate cases in particular areas of law you know, or jurisdiction. The executive is in some ways the most amorphous sort of arm of government because it's expected to do a whole range of things, you know, to prosecute war um, at, you know, one end of the spectrum at the other end to sort of just hand out welfare payments to people, you know, to do these quite mechanical functions as in pay people money every fortnight who, you know, who need assistance right through to something as complex and as foreign as, you know, um, war. And it does everything in between it, you know, it sets up all sorts of organizations and corporations to run particular functions. It surveys people, it imprisons people. It just does so many things that will be quite hard to sort of commit that to writing. So instead you sort of leave it relatively open-ended um, and allow the executive to sort of, um, evolve with the requirements um, of government. So how do how does the Australian constitution compare to um, to European constitutions? Sorry, I think you might have no, no, you haven't present. Never mind. Um, so, like, say Denmark or Germany or France. Well, if you study constitutions comparatively you notice a few things, I think, straight away. One of them is the great diversity of constitutions, as in they, they come in sort of all shapes and sizes. Uh, if you sit down and read the Indian constitution, it's like reading a novel. Uh, it, you know, it has hundreds and hundreds of pages with lots and lots of detail. Um, uh, but then others 
uh, are sort of, you know, sparser, but often quite precise in their language. Some um, have very open-ended language. The other thing that you, you, you notice straight away is that they reflect their age. Uh, a constitution written in the second half of the 20th century reads very differently to a constitution written in the second half of the 19th century. You know, so if you go and read the South African constitution, for example, you know, has a lot of references to sort of more modern conceptions, things like human dignity uh, and, and equal worth that really um, emerge, you know, in law at least, out of the sort of second half of the 20th century, a rejection of the, the rise of international human rights law uh, is grounded in human dignity. And a lot of constitutions after that refer to ideas like that. And then the other thing that you will see is that constitutions are in at least some respects reflect the, the society in which they were created. So they respond to particular types of issues. So if you go and read the German constitution, uh, again, the German basic law reflects a rejection of, of certain um, tenets uh, that emerged in Nazi Germany and sort of stamps um, on them that these things will never happen again. Uh, you know, it reflects that particular history. And so, you know, if you read the Australian Constitution, it does to some extent reflect our particular history. It reflects our history as a British colony or, or a set of British colonies. It reflects our history that we didn't revolt against um, uh, Imperial Britain. Uh, it reflects our problematic relationship with Indigenous Australians um, uh, and, and the colonisation of Australia. Um, uh, you know, it reflects a number of features of Australia while also being to some extent foreign, as in being borrowed from the United States and the United Kingdom. And so I think when you, you look around the world and you read a lot of constitutions, you see, you see that, that, that each constitution is driven by people in that country, typically um, being worried about particular things. And uh, in, in that sense, you know, it's the same, you know, if you go and read Scandinavian constitutions and that, you know, again, in some of them, at least, there's a deep concern for the um, protection of the welfare state, you know, given that that's, um, you know, a point of pride and, and importance to them. Comparatively, the Australian constitution, again, from memory, was highly democratic for when it was introduced. Why was that the case? Well, it partly, I think, is just a product of timing, uh, that at that point in time, there was, a, in many parts of the world, uh, particularly New Zealand, Australia, and some parts of Scandinavia, a move to... Uh, in particular, um, start to give the franchise to women. And so one of the ways in which this, it, the Australian constitution was sort of uniquely or, you know, um, for its time, at least quite progressive, was in, you know, in at least uh, um, some of the colonies, women were allowed to sort of vote on um, uh, the draft constitution, which, you know, was, un was relatively unusual, not unique, but uh, relatively unusual for its time. But then, you know, in other respects, you know, it, it, it wasn't that progressive in the sense as in, um, uh, you know, it didn't give the franchise to Indigenous Australians, for example. So it was partly just a reflection, I think, of its time that at that point there were movements towards 
um, um, giving women the franchise. And some of those movements were in Australia, particularly South Australia. Um, and there was also a movement in New Zealand. And so it just so happened that at that point in time, when it came to vote on the constitution, it reflected the norms um, of that time. So I don't think in that sense, you know, Australia was sort of trying to forge a brave new path when no one was, but it, it was towards the front of this movement uh, that was sort of starting to sweep the world. And, and it just so happened to coincide with federation in Australia. Mm, okay. Um, so I want to turn now to a legal ethics question that I ask every guest. Um, so imagine you're working in a law office a long-standing and highly valued client approaches you one day and asks you to carry out a series of transactions, which would make it hard for an outside observer to track the movement of some money. On its own, the transactions aren't illegal, but they are obviously meant to hide something suspicious. What do you do? It's an interesting question. I think that's uh, you know, one of the reasons I became an academic is so I don't have to <laughs> face these difficult ethical questions. <laughs> uh, and... You know, I think, I think with something like, you know, uh, a, 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 a transaction that, you know, on the one hand looks legal, but on the, you know, but perhaps ethically might be problematic. I'm a big believer in trying to um, uh, have a problem by sharing a problem. And what I mean by that is to go and consult with, you know, other members of you know the firm at which I'm working at, or you know uh, other members of the legal profession in some other sense, if I were a barrister, to go and talk to other barristers to try and get a read of the room to see you know is this something that is going is you know is deep deeply problematic in and of itself, or is it just deeply problematic because it looks suspicious to me, or I've never encountered this before? Is this actually when you frame it in the norms of, you know, the financial industry or the legal industry, actually quite normal, and it's just my own personal, you know, discomfort here at play, or has my intuition, you know, um, latched onto something that is actually uh, really problematic, and therefore I should be trying to you know, advise the client on, you know, uh, uh, the, con the concerns I have or alternative ways of, um, you know, helping them solve their, whatever their, that problem might be. Apart from that, I probably can't give you much more guidance on what I would do. I would try and be led by other people because I have this intuition that perhaps that's wrong, uh, but, you know, maybe I'm also... Uh, you know, maybe I've misread, uh, you know, the qualms that, you know, I initially have on it. Mm. The next question is, how have you attempted to improve yourself as a lawyer? I think in any job you do, you should always be, be thinking about the question of improvement. So, it, and I think... For me, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not trying to prove myself as a lawyer, but one of the areas where, you know, I'm a researcher and a teacher. Um, and so I'm constantly thinking about how I can do both of those primary aspects of my role, you know, in a better way. And so for as a researcher, I think one of the things that I try to do more of uh, is to read and promote 
uh, and celebrate the work of, of younger scholars. So I think, that, you know, as in recently, uh, a colleague of mine uh, at NUS in Singapore uh, and a colleague at Melbourne, Adrian Stone, we ran a, um, for the first time, a junior scholars forum, which was to basically bring together a bunch of people who were sort of just at the end of their PhD uh, and, and to sort of bring them together with really senior scholars and and sort of help improve their work, but also to promote themselves as these young people. So I think one thing you've got to do in your life is whenever you get into a position of power to try and help those who, you know, who are coming, you know, behind you, uh, you know, the next generation of people. And I think that can apply to being a lawyer as well, is that, you know, at one point you're going to benefit from people ahead of you being, you know, giving you a break or mentoring you. Once you get into a position where you can do that to someone else, you should try and, and pursue those opportunities. Now, as to as for being a teacher, I think there one of the the ways I'm sort of I'm trying to constantly improve myself is to try and put myself in the shoes of a student. Is that I think you know the the longer you go away from being a student, the easier it is to forget how difficult it is to encounter material for a first time. You can sort of you know I know this stuff like the back of my hand, and so you can sort of just go and think, well, you know, isn't this you know, um, uh, relatively easy, but then you, you sort of, you have to sort of go back and remember, well, what was it like when I was sitting on the other side of the podium and, and I was sort of baffled by things and I needed something explained to me sort of three ways before it finally clicked. And I think, you know, it's a constant process of trying to go back into that situation and to try and, um, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes, in this case, the shoes of a student and go, what about this doesn't make sense to someone who's coming at this for the first time? Have I, have I assumed something that I shouldn't? And I'm constantly finding that in my own teaching that I'm like, oh, I've, I've assumed something that, you know, a lot of people might not get. And, and I think, uh, you know, as um, classes at Melbourne have become more diverse, you know, we've been wonderfully privileged to have students from all around the world come and study with us. Um, that has challenged me to go, well, there's a lot of things that you assume if you have done your undergraduate education in Australia that you might not have if you've uh, done your undergraduate education in another country. So it's also about trying to sort of um, explain and share with people the norms and assumptions that underpin, uh, you know, theories of government in Australia or theories of law if teaching, you know, in LMR and so forth. And, and that's a constant struggle and challenge and every time I get a question from someone and they and they show me something that I had assumed everyone knew I've learned ah I can't assume that and so I think it's it's constantly trying to you know be a, a little bit humble you know and not be too arrogant and go well you know you should know this um or I you know or, or to proceed on the assumption that someone does uh and and to try and constantly check in with whoever that might be a student or you know, um, a colleague, if you're exchanging ideas about a class or about a paper, to sort of see if they're on the same page as you. So that's something that is difficult, but constantly trying to do. Okay, so the final question then is, uh, what recommendations do you have? I usually limit people to five recommendations of a book or TV shows, music, whatever. Do they have to be law related? Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, so let me give a, a couple then. I think so. One, 
uh, is a law, very law related. And I've mentioned this occasionally in, in some of my classes, and that's the biography of Sir Owen Dixon um, by, I think, Philip Ayres. I think it's one of the better judicial biographies out there. There's not many, but, you know, of those that exist, that's a really great one. I think it really captures for you what it was like to be a law, a young lawyer in a completely different era um, and how different it was to be a lawyer and a judge during the sort of early to mid 20th century. So I think a terrific book, well-written, lots of interesting insights. I'm a big fan um, of podcasts and this one is a bit old. I don't think they do any new um, episodes of it um, uh, anymore, but when it was out, um, uh, it was very, very good. And now I'm just trying to uh, look up the name of it uh, so I don't <laughs> mislead people. Uh, it, it was called More Perfect by Radio Lab, and it was it was again a law related uh, podcast. It was it it basically unpacks the story behind a number of very significant U.S. Supreme Court cases, and I think it shows you the human aspect of uh, the law and also the contingencies that go into arguing cases and how they're decided. So if you want something to listen to, uh, yeah, I don't think they have any more recent episodes. It was a few years ago, but they were really, really fascinating stories. Um, and then in terms of things that are not law related, because as in it would be too dull uh, if, uh, if it was all law related. So this uh, I'm holding up here, uh, this biography of uh, Robert Moses, the power broker, uh, is, is pretty incredible um, by Robert Caro. Uh, it's, Robert Moses is a fascinating figure in the United States. He basically led a lot of the urban development after the war and what he did was both brilliant and horrifying. Um, it's, a, it's a mighty tome and uh, it takes a while, but as in it, it captures so much of the complexity of the United States uh, in, a, in a single single piece. I think I'll leave it there. I know that's only okay. three, but that, that, that'll do for me. You gave Copenhagen, that's four. Exactly, exactly. Definitely go there. Yeah. And if you ever get up to, well, yeah, if we, if we, if we got onto travel, then I would never stop. But there's one thing, I, I, one last one that I will recommend, because the last time I was in Copenhagen, I went up to Iceland. Uh, mm -hmm. And Iceland is spectacular. But there's this point in Iceland where you can go sort of snorkeling or scuba diving between two continents. Uh, and, and there's sort of like a, a narrow sort of waterway and it's the water is like one degree or two degree. You have to be in sort of a dry suit or whatever. It is just supremely freezing, but uh, so well worth it because the water there has sort of, I think, what well, they say anyway, some of the longest lines of sight uh, because of the minerals that are in the water. So you can just see for, you know, ages and ages underwater. Uh, and it's it's cold, you know, but as in it, it's sort of it's very unworldly uh, when you're down there. So if you ever get to Iceland, try look up the spot where between the two continents, uh, the two tectonic plates, whatever it is, and uh, the, the diving and the snorkeling there is phenomenal. Okay, brilliant. Well, I think that takes us to five then. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show. You're most welcome. It was a pleasure to talk with you, Cameron. 
Well, thank you for sitting through the entire interview. If you want to learn more about associateships, MULSS Careers is hosting a panel on associateships next Tuesday. You can see Facebook for more information. Meanwhile, tune in next week for my talk with Julian Burnside QC about being a barrister, balancing public interest law and commercial work, and his very interesting career in general. Until then, enjoy your week.